Welcome back to another episode of Tell Me More. My name is Luke Stair, and today, Katie Reed Hodges, Dr. Wiles, and myself have a conversation about what our life together in worship means, uh, kind of the theological implications of a worshiping life in our community. And we hope you enjoy it. Welcome back to another episode of Tell Me More. I'm here in the podcast studio, so let's hop in. We are jumping in, diving deep. That's a youth song we used to sing, speaking of worship. I'm diving diving deep, deep. head over. I don't know all of it. Because I grew up Methodist, really my Baptist friends were singing that. So anyway, uh, but we are, I I tried to speculate last week and got it wrong, five weeks into a series on the church. And Mm -hmm. so we are talking specifically about worship. Mm Not many people care about worship, not many opinions on worship. I'm not even sure people think about it every Sunday. I've never sat in a church service where someone called down lightning on someone yeah, else kinda about it, worship Yeah, I kind of put it with, like, what's your theory on modalistic monarchianism? You know, like, we just don't think about it every Sunday. That's exactly right. Actually, it's what people – man, I, it, better or worse, it's what people look at when they want to join your church. It's what they consider – uh, mm-hmm. Before they ever walk in the door, they look online and maybe they'll listen to a sermon, but they're certainly going to see what your worship style is. And mm-hmm. They think about what instruments you're playing and the or types of playing. songs. Yes. Yeah. So it's, and we'll talk about all that today, but it, worship is one of those hot button topics. Mm-hmm. In fact, we're looking for a new, we know this, a new contemporary worship leader right mm-hmm. now. We're searching and mm-hmm. we, it's yeah. got to be a resilient and strong person because they get a lot of critique. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, um, Let's hop right in. Yeah. There's a lot to talk about. Where do you start when you have an entire thing well, in recent church history called the worship wars? <laughs> right. Okay. Well, I have, I have an idea of where we can start. I love it. Might Let's I go. toss it out? Mm. Uh, Dr. Wells, yesterday you threw out this um, – you you teased, you showed on the screen a book that you had written mm-hmm. that we kind of actually in here just tried to pinpoint when exactly did that come into the life of First Baptist Arlington, but – what we can know is at a time when we were trying to figure out some worship things, Correct. you felt led to guide the church in maybe a good, hearty theology of worship. Mm-hmm. And so can you tell us a little bit about that mm-hmm. book, how mm-hmm. we could find it, why it might be meaningful even now, mm-hmm. and maybe a little bit of why you wrote it in the first place. Mm-hmm. Is that okay? Yes. The uh, I think it was 2014, <laughs> if I remember correctly, when we when I wrote this book. Um but we were in a conversation about worship. Um, when I first came to First Baptist Arlington in 2001, our church was um, holding two worship services each Sunday morning, and they were exactly the same. The only difference was you had some different choir members, perhaps, in each service. But both services mm-hmm. had a choir ensemble. They were identical. Uh-huh, identical services. And we had two Sunday schools. Uh, the, the Sunday schools varied depending upon the season. There were, we made a few changes along the way. Like there was a time when the middle schoolers went to Bible study or Sunday school at one hour and the youth went the next hour. There was a time when we moved them all together. There was a time when the junior high kids were in one service and the senior high kids were in another just based on Sunday school decisions. But for the most part, when it came to adults, you know, we just uh, we just had two two Sunday schools, and you just decided. And you, you didn't have to make a decision based upon what was happening in the sanctuary because they were the actually just two completely mm, they were there. identical worship services, oh. 930 and 11. Okay. Over time, 
we began to have conversation about maybe making some changes. And and the and the worship when I came here, it was we had a robed choir. It was I would say my take would be a little more formal. Maybe would that might be the right word to use uh, as, as you think of a Baptist mm-hmm. worship experience. Mm. Um, and over time, um, you know, things changed. We we actually remodeled the sanctuary a couple of times. I know that may be hard for y'all to believe, but we. We did make what we chose to do was just kind of alter the facade, if you will, at the front of the sanctuary, not really do much to the rest of the room. And uh, and so with that came some changes. We began to do things on Sunday nights that were a little bit different. Um, we had a youth band, I guess you would call them, um, back in those days. And sometimes they would help out on Sunday evenings in particular. Um, or when we had like a winter Bible study that I would lead, we would we would utilize them. And so you you started having different types of music that was just introduced, if you will. So um, we began to have the conversation about, is it maybe time for us to actually um, officially declare that we're going to have two different types of expressions of worship on a Sunday morning? So that was at least in the air, if you will. And so to kind of deepen that conversation, we decided that the, it was much more, the conversation is more than just about music. What, what really is worship to begin with? What do we believe about worship? What's our theology of worship? What does the Bible say about worship? And uh, so we had a, a, time, a season of just focused prayer and a church-wide journey. And so we set aside 40 days as a church family, and we just made our way through the 40 days of worship. And I wrote this book. It's a devotional guide. You can download it. It's it's um, if you go to www.thesacramentaljourney.org, um, you can go down to the you can scroll down to the download section, and uh, you can download the book. The book's entitled "Please God." It's kind of a play on words. Uh, Barry Rock was our music minister in those days, and uh, we decided that many people came to worship with a desire to receive something from God, and they might end their prayer by saying, "Please God, please God." Barry's take on it was what perhaps would be healthier is if we showed up to worship God, to please God. So we chose that name for the book kind of as that play on words, if you will. Mm-hmm. Very I like clever. It. I like it. And uh, so then um, I just gave a, a, a passage of Scripture to be read every day for 40 days, and I wrote a devotional guide and crafted sermons each Sunday that fit into the topic of what is worship, why mm-hmm. do we worship, and— um, you know, we looked at examples of worship in the scripture. We looked at the um, etymology of the word itself. It comes from the old English word worth-ship, that you ascribe worth to something. Mm. It's where the English word comes from, the modern English word. But it's but it's rooted in the both New Testament and Old Testament words for worship, which typically have to do with the idea of bowing down or of serving. Uh, those are the root meanings mm-hmm. of the Greek and Hebrew words mm. that we that we translate with the English word worship. And with those, can I? Can I be back on that a little bit? Because mm-hmm. my mind's kind of going. So often we, in Christ, we Christianese, we baptize a word that already existed, but worship mm-hmm. in the Old Testament, or it, was it brought for, in from the culture? Like, mm-hmm. was it always used in religious ceremonies, or was it when you think about bow down? Would that also be in like a um, a kingship or that kind of thing? Do you know it, what I mean? I mean, it could. Is but it mostly religious. Yeah, I would say that it it has a pretty heavy connection to the practice of of 
of a deity. Yeah, I'm trying to think through the Hebrew. Yeah, but no matter I was, what you're worshiping, but it's correct. It's, it's deity it related. A, it has that connotation. If you were in another Near Eastern, ancient Near Eastern context, yeah, it would have that kingly overtone. But because the Hebrew people are so different, and they don't start out with a king, mm-hmm. yeah, for you the would, Hebrews, you would not use not in Hebrew. Yeah, you're not borrowing the word language. They started you it. Use for worshiping God correct. that you would use to then go bow in front of King David. Correct. That Got would it. be, yeah, that would be. Yeah, very, very wrong in Hebrew thought and right. in Hebrew language. But you're right. In another culture that didn't have that but, Yeah, in Babylon and uh, the Philistines, mm-hmm. they would yeah, absolutely probably. use the same word for mm-hmm. king and deity. And that's the good. kings were deities to Correct. them. Right. Yeah, that's intertwined, isn't it? Okay. Well, I, anyway, my mind was kind of going. That's okay. I'm trying, I'm trying but, to but also yeah. in, in Greek, you have a word that's tied to service. So over time, you know, we refer to what happens on Sunday morning as a worship service. And that really comes from the fact that. Uh, in the New Testament, both <clears throat> bowing down, kind of being in the presence of God, and also serving God, those words are connected. Um, and so, so anyway, so we we just this devotional guide. That's what it does. It takes you through some of the the biblical terminology, and then just kind of a journey through. Good. Why do we worship? How do we worship? Yeah. Those kinds of. So things. So you're hoping that after 40 days. Right. What you were doing with the church, right. they would have a more robust. Absolutely. In other words, thoughtful. it would rise. It would it would raise your gaze from just what kind of music do I like or prefer. Maybe it's a better word to put there. It's good. Um, to understand that the worship of God is deeper. What we're trying to accomplish, richer, right? That. Than mm-hmm. just what songs we That's happen good. to sing on a Sunday morning. So this might be very timely yeah. mm-hmm. to kind of put this book back as we're looking for someone mm-hmm. new who mm-hmm. obviously. Well, we will, I hate to say it, we will evaluate them, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like we will, sure. but hopefully mm-hmm. on the right things, what they right. bring in the mm-hmm. right ways, you yeah. know, so it's and good. The, and the thing is, um, there is no question that worship um, historically includes music. I, I point that out in the in this little book that I wrote, you know, when, when you look at um, the Psalms, which, which will serve as the worship manual for the people of God for centuries, in fact, for some people still today. Mm-hmm. You'll have the, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, y'all both know this when you're studying Hebrew in seminary, the Psalms, the original so, Hebrew text so of nice Psalms. So nice of you to include um, me in that. Well, you know that both of y'all had to do it. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I guess I could say you got to do it. Um, yeah. But the actual texts of all the Psalms have the little notations at the beginning of the text. In other words, those aren't additions that were added by someone later. Mm-hmm. No, those, those are, are actually, actually verse one in the Hebrew Bible. Yeah, so like the Psalm of David is... Actually, if you were to read Hebrew, that's verse one Correct. in the Hebrew you know, text. Yeah. So it would tell you, you know, to be accompanied with the lyre or, yeah. you know, to the, the, or the note, choir the note, director. The note to the music director, those kinds of things. So those are actually in it the, is the hymn book. They're in right. the text. Yeah. So, that's verse one. Yeah. So these people were using the Psalms as music and musical instruments actually given to the choir director, if you will, mm. um, because they sang these together. You know, the Psalms were not sung individually, they were sung by the people of God. So, um, so music's been a part of worship. I and mean, there's a lot the, there, just right there. Absolutely. Just Dedicating right there. the temple. Yeah. You know, you had the choristers mm-hmm. and the musicians and all of that, or the tabernacle, rather. You know, when you put all that in place, these music, music was very was, much a yeah. part of these people. And even before that, even pre-temple, you have all these people, Moses, Miriam, singing songs. Yes, singing songs. That's absolutely. just part and parcel of Correct. this life with God that right. the people of God are on, even before they get to the promised land, mm-hmm. before they have a temple. Yeah. They're singing and the, and the Jews were known as musical people. You know, when you when you get to um, Psalm one thirty seven, you know, you get the, you're in exile in Babylon, and the tormentors say, "Sing us one of your songs." Well, in other words, they knew that Jewish people were mm. were musical people. So, um, so music's always been a part of worship. 
Um, it, it so when I we, we tried to at least embrace that back then to say we recognize that it is a vital part of this, but there's more to it than that. So, mm-hmm. um, and I think so where we finally landed, obviously, we got to the point where we decided, okay, we're going to actually have two different worship dialects at First Baptist Arlington. One of them is going to be more contemporary, the other more traditional. And we made that decision and we put those services in place. Well, when when we did that. We still had two Sunday schools, and so what that did to the body was, well, then you typically decided when to go to Bible study based upon when you preferred you, you to go to worship, to if that makes sense. Uh-huh. So 9.30 was a contemporary service. 11 o'clock was a traditional <clears> service. <throat> so that meant if you were more inclined for traditional worship experience, you went to Bible study at 9.30, obviously, and vice versa. Um, and we did that for a long time, as y'all, I think we were doing that when you got here, Katie. And yes, of course, when COVID that's when hit. I got here. Um, yeah, when I got here, we had college, I mean, as college minister, we had college Bible study after worship. After, we, after, went to, we went to worship at correct. 930. That's the first time I saw the college students I mean, in the morning. And then afterward, then, we went to Bible study. Bible study. Isn't that that's funny? Right. It feels like, mm-hmm. why would we ever do that? I yeah. mean, now that we've, right. anyway. So when we, you know, and commensurate with all of that, though, we began blessing the generations. And so that was um, a huge decision for the church, you know, to address our campus Absolutely. for the first time in a long, long time. And that was a, right about when I got here, yeah. just to place it all. Yeah. So once we built the new preschool children's building and renovated the young adult space, renovated the senior adult space, well, now we have more education space than ever in the history of our church mm. um, by, by a long shot, not, e- not even close. I mean, when you had, you know, whatever's a, how many ever thousand square foot preschool children's building you had all that preschool children's space well that that was a game changer for us yeah. so so <clears throat> when covid hit and then the decision is now come back to church what do you come back to and as i alluded to that sunday morning we decided well we felt like we needed a, a something that kind of anchored us together in community and we felt like bible study is what historically has most anchored this church in terms of our community and our mission missional life together and we felt like we had more than adequate space, so we said, "Let's just have one Sunday school hour." Well, then that once we did, that was the first decision. Yeah, which so was a many huge conversations decision. about then. Yes. At what time does everything else That's happen? Right. Then yeah. what? You know, yeah. and like I said, Sunday morning, you only have so much time on a Sunday morning, and uh, so we decided we we're still going to ha- offer these two expressions of worship, more traditional, more contemporary, and so we placed them in the in the time slots that we felt like would be most strategic for the long-term health of the the church. The mission of the church. And um, Mm. so that's what we do today. But obviously, worship is more than music. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay, but, uh, um, you know, the New Testament church had to figure this out. You know, you think about, as we talked Sunday morning. Tell us more. These are are all Jews, or or they're God-fearers who become Jews. And so in their in their culture, their religious culture, they have a worship life that they are all familiar with, and they build their lives around it. Mm. You know, so if you were in Jerusalem, well, you were dominated by the temple. You couldn't help but be dominated by the temple because it was the holiest place on planet yeah. Earth, and mm-hmm. it was the place to go to pray, to go to give alms, to give offerings, to make sacrifices. It's where the priest would, the high priest would, would provide. Uh, an offering for the the sinfulness of all the people of God on the Day of Atonement, and there were all the religious ceremonies, the entire Jewish calendars built around these festivals. And if and if at all possible, if you're a Jewish male at one point in your life, you're to be in Jerusalem for the you know for the Passover for these high holy days, if you will. But mm. 
the overwhelming majority of Jews lived outside of Palestine in the in those days, just like we they do today. And so when the Jews were in exile and they had no temple, they had they had to decide what to do about worship. And so they decided it was okay for them to gather together if they could to worship. And so synagogue in Greek means to gather together. So they gathered together and they realized they couldn't do sacrifices. You can only do that temple. in the temple. No but temple. You, you could at least pray and praise God and you could read the Torah or you could read the law, read the prophets, use the writings as mm-hmm. celebratory, you know, acts of worship. And so you 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 develop this whole new practice of worship for the Jews uh, as these synagogues were were constructed. Well, once they rebuilt the temple, they discovered it's actually okay for these Jews to worship outside of Palestine, and they did it in the synagogue. Now, you had to have, I think it was 10 Jewish men, I believe that's right. In other words, you couldn't so, just— where 10 or more are gathered? Yeah, you, couldn't, that yeah, you yeah. couldn't just declare yourself a synagogue. You actually had to have Jewish men that could be trusted to help lead this thing. Well, and this know? is when you start to see the rise of the what would be called the rabbinical movement. Yeah. So teachers. Teachers um, become part of synagogue life. We're going to explain the Torah. You don't have to have a rabbi to be a, yeah. to be a synagogue, but man, you sure wanted one. Yeah, right. Just so you could understand what God was saying, because this, the idea of the revelation of God in Holy Scripture was so ingrained in them already you know, you, you, big you, deal. Yeah, you had yeah. an opportunity for them to be shaped as Jewish people wherever they lived. So think about it. Christianity is birthed at a time where you, you and in a place where you have the temple. So that's still in place. But you have this whole history of synagogue worship. But then you got the person of Jesus, you know, mm-hmm. and you've got to let the person of Jesus shape this. And so that's why when I talked about it Sunday morning, Ralph Martin, who's written this book about worship in the early church, he talks about how all that just converges. You know, you got the person of Jesus. Well, he's baptized in the Jordan River. He institutes the Lord's Supper in the upper room. Obviously, there's the testimony and the proclamation about his resurrection from the dead. Um, but at the same time, they are Jews. So there's this idea in their mind, they can't get out of this. Uh, they're synagogue people. They're used to gathering together in the presence of God around the revelation of God. You know, so... Obviously, that all just gets woven in to who they become as worship as a worshiping community. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the dynamic presence of the Spirit of God, you know, now present within them begins to change that. But they take some of those elements and kind of bring them all together, um, as we talked about Sunday morning. And that the earliest expressions of worship, I think, included all the things that we mentioned. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea of sacrifice, not physical sacrifice anymore. But the embodiment of sacrifice in the person of Jesus becomes the centerpiece of their theology, heightened by the resurrection from the dead. Mm-hmm. So when you when you read like Paul going to these synagogues in, in his missionary journeys, he would talk about that. He would tell these Jewish uh, believers or these Jewish um, folks in the synagogue, hey, I know this story. You know, Here's what happened. Here's what Moses did. Here's how God led us through the wilderness. Here's how God brought us in the promise. And here's what God said to the prophets. And guess what? It's now all come true. It's come true now. And this Jesus, he's he is the Messiah, and he died on a cross, but he was resurrected from the dead, and now he offers you forgiveness of sin, which was a brand new revelation. Then, in other words, you don't just get this by being born and circumcised. Mm. You now have got to make a decision to follow this Messiah. And so he's calling for decisions, almost kind of like a Billy Graham type mm. <laughs> meeting. Mm. And these Jews, I'm sure, are looking at him thinking, why do we have to— <laughs> 
We've got a man in the shade. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> why would you ask us? What to about us? Why are we responding to an invitation? You know, what are you mm-hmm. talking about? But a lot of them did, you know, mm-hmm. and so, yeah. but all that was done in worship. You know, these were worshiping people. And and like I said, Sunday morning, I brought that, you know, the Oxford history of Christian worship. Well, I've got so many of those types of, book, types of books in my library just chronicling the history of worship and how it's morphed over time and has been contextualized and shaped by mm. everything that's happening around us. It, it That's how it was birthed. I think we would all argue that Judaism was both a culture and a religion. It it. it <laughs> There was something about being Jewish, you know? I mean, obviously it was religious at its core, but it was so much more than that, you know? It It was was an identity mm. as a people, really. So Mm. to think that that didn't influence how they worshiped would just be a misreading of history. Of course it did. Right. Um, And now you and I, here we are all these years later, and to think that being an American doesn't somehow influence how we worship, well, then you would just, you would, you, you just wouldn't be paying attention. Right. <laughs> and I like that you know? earlier you used that word, we have two different worship dialects. Right. And I'm, I'm sure you chose that word very intentionally. <laughs> I did. Um, but I think we forget how much that a lot of what we think sometimes is really sacred and untouchable is actually deeply shaped and informed by our cultural tastes and preferences. Mm-hmm. Tell me more. And it's great that this changes. Otherwise, we would, you know, still be reading the Bible in German and to get the real first text of Bedeutung or <laughs> exactly something right, like that. Yeah. Well, you chanting. talked. I mean, you talked. There's a lot. There's a lot here, so I want to talk about it. Doctor Wells, you joked with us about how boomers, mm-hmm. which of which of the generation you, of which I'm, you are a part. I'm, I'm the only one in here. <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, yeah, Luke and I are squarely millennials. Uh, we are. But you talked about— We're not going to say, okay, boomer. <laughs> no, more respect than that. But you. you talked about boomers introduced what we would call contemporary worship. Yes. And so you talk about yeah. context, That's you know, right. where we yeah. see it as normative and not that— uh, I know people fought over it, but I didn't have to fight over Correct. it, you know. And so, right. well, not really. Yeah, yeah. But— you, because it was part of the culture. It was. I, I mean, mean you the said baby the, boomer the Beatles, generation. The Beatles yeah, brought it here. Yeah, the boomers invented youth ministry in churches. There was no such thing as youth ministry in the 1940s. It didn't exist really in America, in churches, I mean. Um, and so you, they brought it in leadership, like when they became leaders or well, when they went through youth? It started in the I mean? 1950s, 60s yeah. as okay. like youth culture started to become a phenomenon in American society. Correct. And so churches said, we need to group mm-hmm. these people. We need to almost, reach these people. That's right. It was almost a, I don't know if you'd call it a demand, but <clears throat> it was like we've got to do something with these young people. What was and, that? Or uh, they're going to become sex-crazed, drug-using exactly hippies. exactly right. And so yeah, they— makes sense. Um, so these ministries so began. Counterculture. Well, yeah. once that happened, the question was, well, how do you how do you minister to this young generation that was, you know, if I think it's kind of interesting if you look at our culture. I guess I guess our culture still musically crazed. I don't know if it is as much as when it was when, kind of a revolution, it, though. What y'all right? There was just so much changing. So when I was a little boy, I'm not. I feel like I'm I'm barely a boomer. I'm on the I'm on the ta- tail end of the boomer generation. But when you look back at the people who are like my my older brother Emerson's age, you know people are fainting at concerts. Mm-hmm. You know for the Beatles or for yeah, Elvis, Elvis or for whoever. Mm-hmm. I mean they're literally fainting. Yeah. They're they they can't even go anywhere. These people can't even go anywhere because they're just they're just mobbed. 
I mean, people still go to concerts, I think, today, but it's, I still don't think it's like it was then. There no. was so much happening. So churches said, well, we've got to have music. I mean, we've got to have the kind of music they will listen to. So this whole youth movement, you know, uh, begins in churches. And so the churches adapted by letting them have kind of, quote unquote, their music, as long as they didn't do it in the sanctuary, <laughs> for the most part, mm-hmm. you know, camp or um, in in other areas in the buildings. Like um, when I was a little kid, you could do that in the fellowship hall, but not in the sanctuary. You know, yeah. you, you wouldn't play. Not the main stage. No, no, not yeah. that kind of music. And so, because it wasn't reverent. I mean, is that correct? The... That was how it was viewed, and it was so influenced by the world. It had rhythms and and instruments that were used in worldly music, and um, and I can even remember as a little boy, it's, it's like you didn't even think about it. It's just what you did. Everybody knew it's just what you would do. You know, you would not do this in the sanctuary on a Sunday morning. There's no way you would have a drummer. You, know, <laughs> yeah. you just wouldn't do it. And, yeah. and it's not like we even. It wasn't like we rebelled and said, "Hey, we need a drummer." It was like, "Well, no, you know." I mean, no. even those of us who were in it would go, "Well, no, you would not." Never put that in a yeah, sanctuary. It's good over there. Yeah, it would of never. course. Look how far we've come. <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is Look at the, it's slip, so funny. the slippery slope well, that the boomers put us on. Yeah. Not something we think about too often, but if you're a student of Christian history, the pipe organ was originally the instrument of the Roman pagan empire. Yes. It would have played at the execution of Christian martyrs in the Colosseum <laughs> like you would hear dramatic. in a hockey game. <laughs> And so for the first Christians, having an organ in church would have been like, we have succumbed to paganism. Mm-hmm. But yeah, why in, would you in this era in where you would not let drums on stage, right. the pipe organ was the norm. It's controversial, yeah. And you think about even— And at some point, yeah, that was—I mean, even, yeah. The theologians it. have argued over it for centuries. I mean, um, Ulrich Zwingli, Martin Luther were contemporaries in the 16th century, and Zwingli was in Switzerland primarily, and Luther in Germany— but Zwingli is one of the most gifted musicians, instrumentalists that among all the reformers. But he didn't believe musical instruments ought to be in the church. And so he would help write hymns, but you had to sing them without accompaniment. Luther would take hymns and set them to the tune yeah, you're not, of, of the music of the that culture. the people were singing in They're the culture. They're bar songs. Right, and bring that into the church. Well, Zwingli thought that was anathema, yeah, that you know, how in the world. philosophies, Absolutely. Right? So even then you had this worship war, if you will, of what's allowed actually in the sanctuary. So kind of fascinating that that was taking place in the 1500s. And so it's always had some point of controversy and some some sense of of responding to a culture around you and so consequently we've we've had that happen today so i you know i think the i think the one of the critiques if you will though of it all is regardless of of what style of music you happen to prefer whether it's in worship or wherever i think what you where the real critique comes is what is the theology that's woven into mm-hmm. the texts of what's being sung no matter what it is. Right. You know, so, but we don't think about that very often. You know, like, so for example, you have hymns in the hymnal that are heavily influenced by theologians, and then they're produced poetically and set to music, and we sing them without necessarily even thinking about the theology that led to them. So, for example, there was a time in American American, um, (coughs) theological history where a number of conservative uh, theologians were post-millennialists, you know, meaning the, for meaning that Christ is for the lay listener. Yeah, Christ is going to return after the millennium. 
So We're Christians gonna are going to usher in yeah, it's the an kingdom of God. Optimistic view of history right. was really prevalent before World War II. Yeah, kind of got ruined by the 20th century <laughs> for the most part, but but hymns were written in celebration of it. They're in our hymnal, but we don't think about it. So when you okay. sing a song like Bring in the Day of Brotherhood, well, that that's a post-millennial theological statement. I'm afraid I might not know that song. Yeah, well, when, when you sing the church is one foundation or some of these hearty hymns that reflect a certain theology, um, you know, or even even like I'm bound for the promised land. Whereas if you're if you're uh, someone who has my particular theological persuasion, which I believe in inaugurated eschatology, I'm not bound for the promised land. I live in the promised land. Amen. So we had my, theology professors at Truett that did not like "I'll fly away." Yeah, right. Y'all can which is kind of connected to more, you know, of a, a, but like a, this escapism. That's right. Great. Yeah. But that's my point. You've got this theology that's kind of woven into all of this that sometimes we don't think about. So the, the, the contemporary music receives that should receive the same kind of rigor, but we should apply it across the board. It's it's everywhere. It's not just in what we like or what sounds familiar to our ears. All was, of our songs are a product of their times and the theological are. movements Correct. of their times. Correct. Every every hymn there is is at one at one point was a contemporary <laughs> expression. A you good know? word. Everything's a good reminder, if you will. Yeah, <laughs> some things never yeah. existed. Everything had a curmudgeon <laughs> speaking against it right. at some point. Right. So I hope that what's happened is we've elevated the conversation now beyond all of that, where we've settled in. Many of us have to say, okay, you know, we're we're going to offer these dialects within one body of believers and and try to focus on what we believe really matters about worship. And so that we can de-escalate kind of the disharmony that comes from disagreements about styles and those kinds of things, and which I think we've been, I think we've done a pretty good job of that as a church. Um, and so, consequently, um, we are looking for a, a minister of, of music now. Well, that person's going to have to have gifts and skills in the contemporary arena. We have Aaron, who is a classically trained musician, whose gifts and skills are in the classic tradition. And we believe both of those, right now at least, are best for the long-term health of our church. And, but they're connected to a deeper theology of worship, of bringing people in the presence of God, of giving people an opportunity to encounter God, to be able to hear God in, in, a, in a language that makes sense to them and gives them the ability to express themselves to God in a language that's familiar mm-hmm. and, and um, achievable yeah, for them. It so, resonates with them. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm, I feel very good about it. I'm grateful for it. I think the thing that I'm most concerned about has more to do with how people view worship and it being a priority in their life as Just opposed in general, to as like in general. The worship the showing up to the worship of God. Correct. Being yeah. a part of the gathered community, the people of God, um, to me is vital to your health as a believer. And um and it's not a commercial for the church per se. Um I can make that commercial because I believe it's beneficial for you. But to me, it's deeper than that. It's it's satisfying something that God has put in all of us. You know, I've been I've been spending a good to, good bit of time studying and getting ready for 2024, and our theme for 2024 is going to be together. And I've just been just unpacking the biblical terms. I think we'd all be surprised at how many terms there are in the Scripture for being together, mm. uh, being yeah. called together, woven together, joined together, lens. united together, called together. I mean, and so. Um, and I'm swimming upstream in an uh, uh, an individualistic culture in America that um, that kind of um, 
it, it'll 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 somehow recoil a little bit when you push too hard for community in America because we're pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and you do what's right for yourself and we've got that that very individualistic um, stream in us, if you will. And I understand that, but there's a deep calling of God for us to be together as His people. I can't do the Lord's Supper by myself on a consistent basis and it have the effect and impact it's supposed to have. I can't baptize myself and it have the impact that it's supposed to have. You do these things in community with the people of God as an expression of the fullness of who God is. And and if you don't do it, well, then you just, you're, you're missing out on the richness, I believe, of what God intended. So that's mm-hmm. what I'm more burdened about, that, that worship is viewed as just one of those things I do if it's convenient, if it's offered at a time that I think is accessible, and if it's done in a way that I like it. That kind mm-hmm. of cavalier attitude to me, that yeah. immaturity, if you will, that's what I'm wanting to address in my yeah. society, mm-hmm. if that well, makes sense. I would say that God speaks pretty harshly against the, if there's no living behind it that goes with the songs. I'm, Amos 5 is something that had been floating through my mind, which is, you are not familiar with your minor prophets. Amos is one yeah, of the he's, he's harshest a, books. In the, it might be yeah. the harshest book in the he's Bible. He's a fine farmer, wasn't he? He's a really nice guy. <laughs> if you want to be convicted today, maybe yeah. just, you know, check out a minor yeah. prophet. But I mean, Read so Amos, Amos Start writes, with Amos. I'll, uh, I'll just, here's a little taste if you are unfamiliar. <laughs> That's right. God speaking through Amos is talking to the Israelites who are keeping up the festivals, keeping up temple <laughs> worship, but they're letting society go to hell in a handbasket or mistreating mm-hmm. people, abusing people living individuals, individualistically oriented lives, we could say. And God says... What does God say to that? Mm-hmm. Y'all. Um, Hit me with it. Amos said it, not me. Uh, God <laughs> said it through Amos, the Bible. We're just me. quoting the Bible, just y'all. The Bible says. This is a deep So this is Amos 5. I'm going to start in verse 21. Uh, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Mm. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. And there you have it. So, right living. It's Mm -hmm. not just about what makes me feel good when Mm -hmm. I come to worship. Mm -hmm. This is about me living in a right relationship with God, Mm -hmm. with my fellow brothers and sisters, with the people of the world. Mm-hmm. And that's when the songs and the actions become, I think, really meaningful and they actually have a purpose. Mm-hmm. If we're just doing them to keep maintaining the system, I think we're we're losing sight of what we're supposed to be mm-hmm. doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not transformative. Yes. Which to me is what worship's all about. That, you know, in Hosea, when God says, I look at, I look across the land. And there's no there's no knowledge of God in the land. I mean, what a, what a word from God when He says, "My own people don't know me anymore." Mm. And then He goes on to say, "What so? What is it? Do you what is it? Do you think I want from you? You think I want your burnt offerings? You think I want your sacrifice? Don't you know those are just expressions of your life with me? That's not your life with me. Those are expressions of your life with me. Well, that's how I feel about worship. That it's not necessarily my life with God per se, but it's an opportunity." for me to express my life mm-hmm. with God together with you all, you know, and I'm shaped by that. I'm transformed. I mean, Sunday morning, you know, when I was asking the church, you know, Zan Holmes telling that story about, 
you know, his grandmother's saying, well, you didn't get much out of the sermon. What'd you put into it? You know, and yeah. he, well, he's thinking, I'm just a boy. But his yeah. grandmother's teaching him a lesson. Treat it like a buffet. Well, don't, yeah, you think you just show up, you know? Well, I'm convicted by that. What do I do to prepare for worship? And I'm mm-hmm. the pastor of the church, you know? Um, it's not just preparing a good sermon. I try to do that every week because I take it seriously. But in all honesty, you know, preaching— Feedback. You uh, do a pretty good job. <laughs> well, thank you. But <laughs> yeah. preaching is a gift. You know, it's a spiritual it gift. Is. I didn't yep. ask for it. It's just what God has chosen to give me. But with that gift comes a responsibility of being a man of God. It's not just being a good preacher. It's It, 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 it comes with a, a, a deep calling to be a person— of God who lives this every week, who who takes it seriously. So, you know, Saturday morning I got up and I would say that um the um you know the the Masters golf tournament is my all-time favorite golf tournament every year, hands down, no matter what. Um, but probably my second favorite event in the golf world is the Ryder Cup. I love the Ryder Cup. And I'm and I'm a huge American. For those at home. No, no. For those at home, you know? what is it? Well the Ryder Cup is this is this trophy <laughs> that was that was um uh it began back in the twenties and it originally was a competition between the best golfers in America and the best golfers in the United Kingdom. But eventually we overwhelmed them so much they expanded to Europe because there weren't enough good golfers, in all, in all honesty, from the United Kingdom to keep up with the Americans were much larger, so they expanded to Europe. So now it's between the European and the Americans. And is it every and year? Every two years. Right. And it's two years. Every two years you play over there one time, then the next time, two years later, you come back here and play. Also, a, a nice yeah. constituency of our listeners yeah. went we this have, year. We have a yeah. number yeah. Of Not just there. our people in our church, but yeah. I think hello to those year, of you who Rome. went to Rome. It was in Rome, so yeah. you think about— I talked to many of you the Sunday yes, before you left. Uh, like my, my wife said to We're me, Rome and golf. Could you could you have I know. a better thing I know. for you, And Dennis here you Wiles. are in Arlington. And here I am in Arlington. But, yeah. but so all I got, that to say, that's, I got up Saturday and that's morning, going on right now. It's playing, and it's and it's early because it's in Rome. And it's only on every two years, yeah. And so I'm recording it, but I got up Saturday morning, and I thought, you know, I love the Ryder Cup, and I like to watch it live. I just, I can't help myself. There's something about recording something like that. I just want to be in the moment. And so, and I, I was sitting there, turned the Ryder Cup on. I was up early because it came on early. And uh, I don't know, it was about 7.30 or so. I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go down to church this morning mm. for a little while. And then I was thinking, well, I'm, you know, I can go to church this afternoon. Yeah, I can go, I can. And I thought, no, you know, I, um, I, want, I want to go to church this morning. So Cindy was out. Uh, sitting by the pool, reading, studying her Sunday school lesson, and and uh, it's kind of a nice, cool morning. And and uh, I don't remember what time it was, but anyway, I went out there, and she said, "What are you doing?" I said, "I'm, I'm going to go to the church." And she said, "Today?" I said, "Yeah." She said, "What What are you going to go do?" I said, "You know," she kind of looked at me, and she said, "You know what? Go do it. Go." She kind of knew you just need to go be <laughs> mm. at church, and so I left and. Came up here and I met some of the deacons on their way out who had been preparing the Lord's Supper. And that's what I thought. I thought, here are these lay people here preparing for my people to worship. And it just overwhelmed me. I can't help it. So Saturday morning. And so I found myself in the sanctuary just going from pew to pew, just praying and thanking well, God for these people. when you go pew to pew, you can picture who's kind of I can't. Yeah, there, I know right? where everybody sits. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we don't want to be that church. But I mean, you're not, it's not generic. Well, I'm sure you're praying yeah. for anyone of that course. might. Of but course. You go to a certain spot and you think yeah, about the people. Um, yeah, I know where a lot of them are. And so I so found myself just praying over them and what God's doing in their life. And and um, and so when I when I arrived, so when I went home, you know, my family came over, watched a little football. But 
as the day wore on, it was just interesting that what was happening inside of me, it was like I couldn't, I couldn't wait for Sunday. Not because I was that excited about the sermon I was going to preach, because that does happen to me sometimes, but just I just couldn't wait to get here on Sunday morning and just just experience being in the presence of God and in the presence of our people. And it just reminded me, um, it's important to be prepared. This this really matters. And so, um, and I had several people come up to me after church Sunday and say, you know, it's been a while since I've thought about me being prepared. And it's more than praying on Saturday. It's today. It's living today. What's my life like this week? And how will that better prepare me the next time we gather as the people of God? Oh, really? It should. Yeah, it's good. It should. So mm-hmm. anyways, it was, it was a powerful weekend for me. And then celebrating the Lord's Supper together the way we did that Sunday morning. Um, it was just a very meaningful day uh, for me um, as the pastor of this church. And, um, and so worship, I mean, I always feel intimidated when I try to preach a sermon on worship because I always believe I'm going to sell it short. Mm. Mm. I'm not going to give it its due mm. um, because it's the worship of God. You know, it's, it's, and the fact that I've been invited to do it, I get the privilege of doing it. And, uh, and I live in a country where I can do it anytime I want to, anywhere I want to. Um, I think I'll be held accountable for that, mm. you know. And, uh, and it, didn't, it didn't hurt, too, that I just had these two Ukrainian brothers here. And I realize the whole conversation about the Ukraine is, can be political. But not when it comes to Christians who are just trying to beat on Sunday morning and worship God when they're under threat, regardless of why the threat's there. Um, you know, just just visiting with them and them telling us about how sometimes on Sunday mornings the the um, the alarms go off and everybody has to run to shelter. And I I don't know, y'all. I was just thinking about what what would that feel like? You know, that I'm gathered for worship on Sunday morning in something that I believe is the most sacred time, and I've got to run for shelter. Um, that's not my context, but it contextualize my context a little bit, at least this past Sunday. <laughs> so anyway. It's good. But and there's a lot there. And there's more that I could ask about. It makes mm-hmm. me, it piques my curiosity in many yeah. different directions. <laughs> However, we kind of have a covenant commitment with yep, our listeners we do. We do. and each other that mm-hmm. maybe we can close the chapter on this. But yep. the good news is this podcast gets recorded every Monday morning. Just for you. Yep. And so whatever we didn't talk about fun. today, it I enjoy fun. it. And I, I love it. you know, the feedback we get from our people, one, mm-hmm. it means something to know that people mm-hmm. listen. Sure. We're not doing this just for ourselves. Mm-hmm. But, but well, even this right here is a great example of church Okay, to me. I could do this podcast by myself, okay? I've been doing this a long time. You can hit record. I'm you can talk into you, a I mic. Mean, one, yeah, once y'all show I mean, I say that by myself. Y'all know what I mean. You know oh, how to do this. Well, I'd have to have Kyle, Kyle could hit record, and you and can, but you can talk for an hour. But my it's goodness, proven. I, I've done, I've been studying, preaching and teaching and living this for a long time, longer than both of y'all been alive. But think about how much better I am because of you two, how much richer this experience is because of both of you and how y'all both have challenged me and helped me to be uh, more thoughtful. And you bring things out of me that I would never even, I would never even think about were it not for being in the presence of you two. And that doesn't just happen on Mondays. That happens throughout the week, the relationship mm-hmm. that we have with each other. That's just a small example. Look what the church does. We're it brings out the together. very best of who we are and it challenges us and uh, I can promise you I'm a better minister because I'm serving alongside you two in particular and others as well. Mm-hmm. And it's a great example to me. That, that's what I love about church. I'm, I'm a different person in some ways because I'm in community with God pe- 
God's people. And I would say as the pastor of this church, you two in particular, because of the life that we share. So, mm. Well, it's a compliment, compliment to us. Thank mm. you. And likewise, mm. we, there's a dynamic life, not just static. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And so. And I love it. Let's just think about all that, that holds for us. So, <laughs> okay, y'all, we appreciate you, the listener. We really do. We I, do. I picture faces when I say that. And I appreciate each of you. And we'll see you next week. for listening to the Tell Me More podcast today. You can subscribe to this podcast on your app of choice, or you can visit us at fbca.org to find out more information about the podcast and our church. Thanks for listening. Have a good day.